Now we've been talking about leadership and David from the Old Testament has been our, our model for leadership and up until this point it's been a really positive uh, model for us. But we've prefaced most of our talks by saying you may not feel like a leader and uh, it's interesting even Donna and Wes uh, just different styles of leadership and yet still leading in significant ways in their spheres. We'd all know this leader, Nelson Mandela. We've just celebrated the anniversary of his birth, which was a centenary. So he was born in 1918, 2018, we've celebrated. There's an exhibition at the Melbourne Museum at the moment about Nelson Mandela uh, to celebrate that. It's called um, Mandela, My Life, the official exhibition. Nobody would argue that he was an unbelievable leader. He helped bring an end to apartheid and he's been a global advocate for human rights. But another leader you may not know is um, this one. Her name's Bethany. There's a Bethany over here, but this one's Bethany and she's my granddaughter. And you think, well, she's not really a leader. Well, we were quite amused because she's in prep and she came home about uh, three weeks into prep and she had a little badge and she was on the junior school council. So she must have some leadership potential. I've been sort of trying to get it out of her for months now. What does it actually involve being a leader on the junior school council? And initially she had no idea at all. But now and again she tells me what they do in their meetings and recently they had a dress up as a farmer day so that they could raise money for the farmers and they're doing all sorts of good things. So leaders come in all shapes and sizes and however old or young we are, we have the ability to influence people, don't we? I dare say most of us have experienced uh, disappointment with leaders, people we've looked up to who've failed us miserably. And uh, I could probably look back in my life at three or four of those people who I really probably uh, looked up to a little bit too much who let me down badly. And yet when we look back on ourselves, I dare say most of us um, have experienced some sort of disappointment with ourselves, haven't we, when we've failed as leaders. I love that when Wes said the... Uh, he mentioned to Sean, and she agreed with him. <laughs> it's really great as a husband, isn't it, when you sort of just open yourself up to your wife and she affirms what you're thinking. <laughs> Happens often. But many of us have probably got times we can look back on that were uh, disappointments in terms of our leadership. As a parent, I remember thinking, because we were brought up to eat everything, and I remember thinking that my kids should eat everything, and who likes Brussels sprouts? I, I love them. I just love them. And I thought my son should love them too. But I, I have a regret, and I get reminded of this quite often, I have a regret for the way that I tried to get him to eat Brussels sprouts. I, I didn't approach it in the right way. And, you know, we've got plenty of examples in our, in our world of what we would call duplicity, of people doing things that seem so totally out of character uh, or living completely double lives. We find that this person has lived one life in one city and another life in another city uh, and somehow been able to keep that life separate from that life uh, for a long time, usually get found out. And Mr Incredible at this stage in his life was a little bit like that, wasn't he? He was hankering uh, for the life that he once knew and unable to tell his wife uh, the truth about his job or his leisure activities or the conference he's going to. Um, there was a side that was uh, was hidden. Now, so far in our looking at David, we've looked at three things. We looked at the preparation of a leader and we found that David was just a shepherd boy. It was a meagre sort of a beginning. And yet in that uh, arena, he learned 
that the Lord, God, was his shepherd. God cared for him and he had that trust and that faith in a, a God who loved him and cared for him. And then we looked at, so we looked at the calling of a leader and David seemed like the least likely candidate. When the prophet Samuel comes and looks for him, uh, looks for the, the next leader, David's the last one in the, in the line and they have to sort of go out and look for him. Uh, and the Bible in that section talks about people look at the outward appearance but God looks at the heart and God saw something in David that was significant. He had a heart that was turned towards God. And then last time we looked at the testing of a leader, sorry, and uh, David was facing a giant. And he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. And so we found from David's life, get to this slide now, (laughs) that he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who had a heart that was turned towards God. David's inner life was the thing that mattered. And I think for us, we need to recognise that they're the things that matter more than what people see on the outside, what's going on inside of us. Our humility and our love for God and the things that God loves. Everything else flows from those things. Capture our heart and capture our mind and our hands and our feet will tend to follow God wants to do his work in us so that he can actually work through us. We've said that a number of times as we've gone through this series. Now, the story we come today, to today is what I would describe as a, a regretful saga. And uh, you're probably familiar with it. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. But if you're not, listen up. It's springtime and it's about 30 years after the Goliath incident. And so... David's much older, maybe 50 years old. He's been king for about 20 years. And King David's army has gone out, uh, as they did in those times, to raid some neighbouring tribes and plunder their towns and bring back the loot. And David typically would have gone out with them. But this time David chooses to stay home. He's by now well established as king and uh, he doesn't seem to need to prove himself anymore in battle. And obviously these weren't overly important battles that were being fought. But when we look at David and we see him withdrawing from that frontline participation with his troops in battle, we wonder whether there's also something uh, in that, that David's actually withdrawing from the life of dependence on God, from that life that that, um, was soaked in uh, daring faith, energetic prayer. And, you know, as the story goes on, we don't have to wait long for an answer about what's happening in David. You see, one afternoon while he's walking on the palace roof, positioned where he can see over the courtyards of the nearby houses, he sees a woman bathing. And this woman is extraordinarily beautiful. And he sends for her and he takes her to his bed and then he discards her and sends her home. Her name's Bathsheba. Her husband's name is Uriah and he's off fighting in David's army. A month or so later, David gets a message from Bathsheba and he learns that she's pregnant. She sends word to David to tell him this. And David is a a good problem solver and so he handles this one by sending for Uriah, giving him a month's leave and he expects that Uriah is going to come home and go immediately to his wife and so the baby that's to be born 
it'll look like Uriah is responsible for the pregnancy and not David. But Uriah is an amazing guy. He's a loyal soldier and he doesn't feel good about going home and enjoying his wife while his fellow soldiers are roughing it out there sleeping in the open fields. And so he sleeps on the porch of David's palace. He won't go home. And so this totally frustrates David. So the next night he invites him in, gets him drunk and uh, hopes then that he would go home. And yet again he sleeps on the mat. Out with the servants. Refuses to go home. Doesn't think it's the right thing to do. His fellow soldiers are out on the fields. So David solves this complication to his strategy by sending Uriah back to the army camp with a letter to Joab, the general, if you like, instructing Joab to place Uriah in the very front line of the troops when they go into battle, where he'll almost certainly be killed. David actually gives Uriah that letter to take to Joab. So he's actually giving him his own death warrant to deliver. So Joab obliges, because I think as you read the story further on, intrigue is totally up Joab's street. He's got something now over David. Um, And Uriah is killed in the battle the very next day. And Joab sends word back to David, reporting the death. And after the time of mourning is complete, David sends for Bathsheba and he marries her. And I think if we've been following the story to this point, we're not really prepared for a David like this, are we? What begins as a a lustful whim as he looks out from his palace balcony develops into an outrageous sex and murder crime. An unbelievable contrast to the David that we thought we knew. I'll just highlight the contrast here. David and Goliath, what a victory. David was young then, he's older now. He was fighting a cruel, ugly giant, which this time he's confronted by a gentle, beautiful woman. With Goliath, he's victorious. With Bathsheba, he's defeated. I noted as I read through the passage uh, in 2 Samuel 11, if you ever want to look it up, 2 Samuel 11 and 12, there's a repetition of this word sent. And uh, sent seems to be a very innocuous word, really. Um, But just have a look at this. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. When you see David sending in these little paragraphs that I've put on the screen, I think there's a sense that he's actually in control. He's orchestrating the circumstances to his benefit. David sent Joab out. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. Then David sent messengers to get her. Now, there was something David couldn't control. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, sent Uriah. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. You see all the the six or so cents that are in green. David's in control. But there were two things he couldn't control. Uh, One was Joab, and it comes back to bite him. And the other was uh, the fertility of Bathsheba's womb. He just couldn't control those things. And so he's, uh, he's in an interesting position, isn't he? That little passage ends with the, the phrase, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Well, the months pass by and we wonder whether David might have got away with it. It appears that the baby 
conceived may have been born and we wonder has David put the whole thing behind him and moved on or is David actually dealing with the guilt of what he's done on a daily basis tormented by it but unable to confront it not wanting to bring it out into the open there's two psalms that gives an insight into what's going on in David that he's written probably around this time and and one of them is psalm 32 and David says blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. There's this sense that as David, in this time when he's been hiding all this stuff and it hasn't come out into the open, that internally he's being eaten up. Well time passes maybe a year even passes and uh, there's a prophet in this story that David has quite a bit to do with and a lot of respect for and his name is Nathan and uh, Nathan as God's spokesperson is under obligation uh, to confront David about what he's done but I guess he had to pick the right time and it's probably 12 months later and he chooses to do it in a, a very very clever manner He tells David a simple, simple story, but a very, very powerful story, and it goes like this. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and one poor. So he's setting up a big contrast. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought, and he raised it and grew up with him and his children. Shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So what an amazing little uh, lead-up we have. There's this one man who's got this precious lamb. This other guy's got sheep and cattle, more than he needs. Now, a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who'd come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. And you read a story like that and you're just outraged and that's how David was. He was absolutely incensed. How can this be? Absolutely flabbergasted by what he's heard. And he pronounces immediate judgment. He says, the man deserved to die and the lamb must be restored fourfold. So this man who had a lamb, he's just got to get four of them and he should die for what he's done. It's so unjust. And David's first thought that the person who did such a thing should die was an un conscious pronouncement if you like of his own uh, death sentence sentence upon himself so Nathan the prophet immediately hit David with his verbal sledgehammer and he says to him David you are that man and the passage goes on to say this is what the Lord the God of Israel says I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms I gave you all Israel and Judah and if all this had been too little I would have given you even more why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and you took his wife to be your own now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. What a shock for David. If he'd been rationalising his behaviour during the intervening months, if he'd convinced himself that killing Uriah was the only way out, if he'd hardened his heart to the, to the meanness of his actions, all of that was over now. He was now under his own intense condemnation. 
And David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. I wonder how do we respond when we're confronted with our, our moral failures. The most common responses, you know, we tend to have involve a, a preoccupation with our, our own uh, public image, I think. I know they do for me at times. We want to minimise the damage uh, or we want to make excuses for what we've done. We want to find out who told you or we want to find out who else knows about it or we want to suggest that it wasn't quite as bad as, as you're making out or ultimately we might say, oh, OK, I did do that but look, you're exaggerating the details a bit. But David's response here is exactly the right one. He looks at what he's done he looks it squarely in the eye and he says, I've sinned against the Lord. He faces it, he confesses it, he humbles himself and remarkably he's spared. This doesn't mean he doesn't have to live with the consequences of what he's done. Um, the second half of David's reign is almost the exact opposite of the first. I did a little simple, simple diagram last night um, to try and show you this. David became king when he was 30. Um, then after about seven years in, other tribes submit to his um, leadership, so he's really king over all Israel. And then at the midway mark, he has this incident with Bathsheba. And then seven years on from the end of his reign, uh, through his own son Absalom, there's a, a massive revolt against his leadership. And then he dies uh, a much lesser man at the age of 70, a reign of about um, 40 years. Our failures have consequences and we need to live with them. Um, and yet the, the amazing thing in this story and the amazing, uh, I hope, encouraging and uh, comforting thing for each of us is that when we come, like David did, with contrite hearts and confess, when we say, I've sinned against the Lord, God moves towards us in a remarkable way. The psalm that... Uh, I want you to look at, uh, just as we close, is Psalm 51. Some of you might know it well. But it's, it's a psalm that expands on David's comment, I have sinned against the Lord. Uh, and it's a psalm that leads him to, to forgiveness and healing and restoration. I think Psalm 51 should speak to us all when it comes to dealing with our brokenness before God. If you're struggling with something that's uh, eating away at you, I would commend Psalm 51 to you. First thing I want to say from Psalm 51 is that we've got a need. All of us have a need for God's mercy. And David comes to God and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. The good news of the Christian faith is that whatever we've done, however much we think we've stuffed up, when we come to, to God, we come to a God who's merciful and gracious and has, is a God of unfailing love and a God of great compassion. But we need to recognise our need. We need to recognise that we need God's mercy. And then I suggest that there's a, there's a prayer. The whole psalm is really a prayer. But David's prayer is, God, could you wipe the slate clean and could you make me anew? God is a God of fresh starts. And uh, David says, hide your face from my sins blot out all my iniquity, create in me a clean heart, O God, 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Powerful, powerful words. We need God's mercy. God is a God who can wipe the slate clean and make us brand new. But we need to have, have the right attitude and the attitude is this attitude of contrition. This ta- psalm talks about uh, the sacrifice, our sacrifice being a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart you, God, will not despise. That's hard. Contrition means actually owning up and being prepared to put it out there. This is what I've done and I don't like it and I'm sorry about it. I'm repented over it. I want to change. I want my life to be different. I want to move on from there. I want to leave that sort of thing behind. And then finally, David's response is is a great one. He says, I'll declare how good you are. I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. My experience of the way you've dealt with me will be something I can pass on to others. And I'll actually... um, Use my tongue to sing, as we have this morning, of how good God is. My mouth will declare your praise. It's a sobering story, and maybe you're here today and you've heard it a lot of times before, but maybe you haven't. But maybe you're sitting here and you're still tormented at some level by by guilt for something in the past. Or maybe for some ongoing failure that, don't, that you don't seem to know how to deal with. The good news of Jesus is that there is hope and there is healing if you're willing to face up and confess and humble yourself before God. God looks at the heart. A contrite and a humble heart, this is what God desires. The remarkable thing about David's story is that we, we, we refer to David as a man after God's own heart. And despite all this, despite stuff that, that we would look at and we would, we would have a tendency to ostracise a person who's done the things that David has done, God still looks at him and sees something about his heart that means that he, he forgives him and he retains him as king. He's dealing with the, the consequences of what he's done, but God has been very, very gracious to him. The healing and hope which came to David expressed in Psalm 51, I think should speak to us all. David's failure as a leader reminds me that through my bitter failures, my many flaws, still God is forgiving. God gives me hope that I can go on and be loved and be used by him even beyond my failure. The band's going to come up and they've got a a, a beautiful song uh, that they're going to play for us and it's called You Take Our Failure. Some of the words, You Take Our Failure. You take our weakness, you set your treasure in jars of clay, so take this heart, Lord, I'll be your vessel, the world to see your love in me. We need mercy. God can wipe our slates clean. When we pray, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. When we pray with a heart of contrition, God can still use us to, to bring other people into that experience of who God is. Today we've got uh, people who are going to pray at the end. 
I'd encourage you, if you're struggling with something that's been a, an ongoing thing, maybe a, 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 the sense of a guilty conscience that you haven't dealt with, there'd be people who'd love to, to share with you and pray for you. As the band plays, maybe you'd just like to think about these, these things on the slide that's up there now. Recognise that none of us is beyond God's mercy, but we need to come to God with that heart that's prepared to say, I'm broken, I can't do this on my own, I need you. God will respond to a prayer like that.